Hello, this is Jazz Shelton, and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? Oh, it's a pleasant day in the pandemic. It's great. I, I love uh, seeing people with masks on. It's great. It, it feels like I've moved into the Watchmen TV series. It's amazing. You know, I have to say, as an aside, I was in Marina Del Rey yesterday and I uh, went for a bike ride and it was lovely and saw about 20% of people wearing masks and the beach and playing basketball and everything else. So uh, I'd say it's higher in the valley. I'm saying maybe like 50 to 75% I'm kind of seeing out in the world. Mm-hmm. When I went out yesterday to only see 20% was like, Wow. Yeah. Hey, um, hey, people not wearing masks. If you're listening to the sound of our voice, you're making this go on for longer. And so uh, life is going to suck longer because of you. Thank you. Not mask wearing people. You know, I I don't mind getting political here, but it's yes. All all of the people living their best life yesterday down at the beach. I I still haven't like eaten in a restaurant since March. Smart. Good good for you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm saving a lot of money. So uh, who do we have on the show today? Uh, We have Jas Shelton on the show today, Emmy-nominated DP of the TV series Homecoming, which is fantastic. Which, by the Uh, way, I want to shout out, was adapted from a podcast. Mm, That's right. Was adapted from a podcast. Yes. Uh, And this was the second season of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, looks really good. It's got it stars uh, Janelle Monet, and uh, it's pretty amazing stuff. And uh, I want to have a shout out. I mean, like every time we interview anybody, I always like to point out the horror movie that they did earlier in their career. And and Jess Shelton is no exception. And in fact, um, the the company that I made the movie Alien Raiders for the previous movie that they made was a movie called Rest Stop, Don't Look Back, which he shot. And so I was actually on his set. Is that a sequel? It is. Stop, it is. Don't it look is, back. Okay. It is the sequel to Rest Stop. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, which is it. also made by uh, by Rafid for Warner Brothers. So I don't know. I, I, I always like looking back into people's uh, filmography, and I'm always happy when I see a nice uh, genre uh, entry on that. So yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's it's really wonderful to see the the horror films that people have shot or uh, episodes of the Red Shoes Diaries. That is uh, another. That, it's really one or the other. It's yeah. they either did the Red Shoe Diaries or they made horror films. <laughs> There's really almost no in between. Or they made indie films if they came up in the 90s. That, that's right. Those those are those are kind of the options. Well, uh, yeah. what do we got happening? in close focus. I know it was an interesting week. Uh, a couple of things happened uh, throughout the industry, but Ben, what do you, what do you want to talk about first? Well, uh, we had two things that we kind of wanted to hit on. Uh, the first one was massive layoffs at CAA, Creative Artists Agency, one of the biggest, you know, like one of the top five agencies in Hollywood uh, representing actors, directors, writers, you know, basically all above the line people. Yes, my former employer over there. Uh, yeah, big, oh. big, yeah, big layoffs. Uh, Three hundred people, about some executives and a bunch of support staff. Um, yeah, that's uh, probably. It seems a- axiomatic to me that when we're not making any new shows or movies, that the people who make ten percent of what people make when they make movies uh, and TV shows, they would be out of work. I'm surprised that they laid them off mm-hmm. uh, rather than furloughing them. But some, I wonder, some were furloughed. Some support staff were fur- furloughed, mm-hmm. but executives did uh, get the boot. 
Mm. And uh, as actually you told me, a bunch of them are like going off and forming their own production companies. So they're moving into management, which to me is sort of the direction that a lot of agents end up going in. They, they, they work in the agent world and agents are prohibited by law from producing. That's right. Man- managers are not. And mm-hmm. even though there are strictly defined kind of guide rails about what agents and managers do, uh, lots of managers do the same kinds of things that agents do. Uh-huh. And they are far less regulated. Uh, sometimes that that is uh, to be sure. But um, the management companies out there, they're really sort of blurring a lot of lines, including really deeply getting into the uh, producing and to a certain extent packaging of things, which also uh, is is a big controversial topic. Yeah, that's I mean, a they're con- doing it forever. Th- think about like anonymous content or, uh, you know, go, go back to propaganda. Propaganda was, you know, I mean, Alex Winter was telling us about them. You know, they were a management company. And and they produced and packaged and did all the same stuff and they managed you know giant giant people. That's right, vertical integration. It's a way to uh, keep a lot of the money at home, which is uh, yeah. I think what everyone's what's everyone's trying to do. Uh, the other thing uh, that you that you happened this past week or in the last I think day or so, you were telling me is that DC just basically they hit the ground with a ton of new like content yeah stuff they had like um well i mean like they had like an interesting uh, mostly animated teaser for the new suicide squad movie that uh, james gunn is making uh and they had of uh guardians of the galaxy fame uh yes and they and it, that's actually he jumped on to doing the suicide squad when he was fired from the guardians of the galaxy and then got rehired from guardian to guardians of the galaxy and so basically got to have two he's massive got, franchises going simultaneously he does. He's got Marvel and DC both, uh, both, both uh, after him. So, so uh, good I for just him. want to say good, good for him. Really, I've met him before. Super nice guy. Um, oh, all right. And uh, yeah, we let's get him on the show when he he's, did when he's not making. I don't, a, I don't think I, uh, I. I don't know. Maybe I could. I don't know. I. I, well, I don't know that I have. A, he's not a making a, yeah, a huge, you know, blockbuster for one of the. Yeah, he seems like he might be a little busy. He might be slightly busy, but you know, it is a pandemic, so maybe not. <laughs> it's true. But anyway, so they kind of had a teaser for that. And then they had a full-on trailer for The Batman. Mm. And if you haven't seen it, check it out for sure. That's that's Greg Frazier's, uh, yeah, he's, he's still working on that. He's still shooting that. Yeah, well, they were shut down in the middle of the pandemic, so they haven't finished shooting the movie. But I got to say, the trailer looks like David Fincher 7 made sweet, sweet love to the crow. <laughs> It's wow. Okay. It's, it's a very atmospheric, dark and very 90s feeling kind of grungy ass Batman. And the shots of uh, Robert Pattinson are goth and emo to the extreme, which makes me very happy. But people have been making fun of it and saying emo Batman, to which I reply, Batman has always been emo. It, <laughs> you just got to catch up with it. Yeah. It, that Ben Affleck stuff doesn't work because Ben Affleck is not emo. The we, crow, the crow is Batman. super, the crow is super emo though. That is like, the, you know, the is, crow is, it's goth. It's just straight up goth. So uh, that was very entertaining. But really uh, the, the nut meat that I wanted to get into ooh, with you. Ooh, nut was, meat. All right. I'm ready. Brazil yeah, nut was okay. uh, the Justice League the Snyder cut. So to me, this is a very interesting development and I don't really have a dog in the fight one way or the other, but as you know, the DC cinematic universe released justice league in theaters like two years ago, three years ago, right? Like fully released, finished, polished VFX, sound mixed, everything in theaters. I saw it in theaters. People paid money for it. Yeah. 
I, I paid money to see it. Larry Fong, of course. Yeah, of course you, you go see it. Of the course. Yeah. I saw, I saw the really weird VFX that they had done for some of the reshoots on Superman's upper lip because Henry Cavill had a mustache for the Mission Impossible movie and contractually was not allowed to shave it off. To, so they did some weird VFX thing that honestly doesn't work. Oh, wow. I, I had no idea. But most famously, that movie in the middle of production, there was uh, Zack Snyder, while he was directing it, he had a personal tragedy and had to step down and was replaced with Avengers director Joss Whedon. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer creator. And yes, I remember seeing Justice League and he shot, he reshot giant chunks of the movie and changed it all up. So, so Zack Snyder, who had made Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman, and who I believe has a very specific vibe that he achieves, which can sometimes be polarizing, but I'm actually quite a fan of it. Uh, he wasn't able to finish it. So there, there's been a hue and cry from the fan base for the Snyder cut. But of course, that would mean going back. I don't know about reshoots, but it would mean going back into all the elements and adding video effects and probably ADR and new score and, you know, color grade. Like it's not it's not an inexpensive uh, proposition, uh, but supposedly they have created something that's going to be a multi hour project that will be playing on HBO Max. Okay, so this is uh, this is in service. Who, who's asking for this? Was Zack Snyder asking for this? Was fans asking for this? Who who was asking for this to, there, to yeah to bring okay, this out? Uh, I'm always reminded that Twitter is not real life, but I've been seeing tweets about show us the Snyder cut for some time now. It's not a new thing, and I think that there was a giant fan base for uh, Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman and. Honestly, no matter what you think of those movies, like they were, they were sort of constructing around Zack Snyder what they had done with the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, around, I guess, Kevin Feige's vision. So this is more director-driven, and uh, and Marvel was more producer-driven, but same basic idea. And so, uh, you know, even though Zack Snyder wasn't in charge of writing it, but he was kind of like the holder of the torch, of the look, of the feel, of the vibe, whatever. So. Wonder Woman, which he did not direct, was directed by Patty Jenkins, was still kind of styled after look-wise what Zack Snyder had done to kind of fit into that world. And not to cast any aspersions on Joss Whedon, but I feel like Joss Whedon brings a certain kind of glib, uh, comical sense of humor. There's a lightness to to Joss Whedon. Zack Snyder, I feel like his movies uh, have a lot more gravity to them. And uh, one isn't right and one isn't wrong. And I'm not again, I'm not I'm not really trashing either one. But uh, there has been that cry from the fan base who wants a more serious movie. And there were a lot of uh, I've heard theories and stuff about sort of how Justice League was kind of rushed. And and tonally, it feels a little inconsistent because it's got a bunch of Zack Snyder here and then a bunch of Joss Whedon there. And it doesn't really feel like one cohesive perfect thing that was all made by itself so uh, I'm interested to see it but I think it's also interesting to see what happens when the fans want something that much because you know for instance there's been a lot of complaining about uh, Star Wars episode uh, Hmm. 8 The Last Jedi there's been a lot of complaints about Star Wars The Last Jedi Um, from Uh, the fans from from people who feel like yeah they wanted a different movie than what uh, Ryan Johnson gave them and uh, again I I actually really like The Last Jedi I'm not here to have, have that conversation but I do kind of wonder why the fans would be able to dictate exactly what the the people making stuff were making if I'm not I'm not 
saying that it's necessarily a bad thing to be very fan driven but i also feel like sometimes we go too far like snakes on a plane if you recall <laughs> on, a, on, a, um, on an mf plane we we have to we have to we have to bring this up on every episode snakes on a plane um you know the fans wanted uh samuel jackson saying i i've had enough of these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane and there was all this fan involvement and then the movie kind of tanked and, and, but that happened that lines in the movie so no but the fans got what they wanted and that didn't actually make the movie successful. So if I'm not saying that they're going to go off and make another Star Wars movie to replace The Last Jedi, I think that that's a ludicrous notion. But where where does it stop, I guess, is the real question. I, I, I feel like there is a lot of scholarly and not so scholarly conversation that goes on about superhero movies across the, the pods casting universe and uh, I don't think that we're going to add anything to that fan driven discussion right now but from like a business perspective I mean these are huge movies these are huge movies for Warner Brothers just as uh, you know uh, Marvel is huge business for Disney uh, I, there's no sign of it letting up there's no sign of additional ones happening but it almost feels like in this fan service they're trying to give everyone the movie they want they're, they're giving the director the movie he wants giving the the fans the movie they want maybe that's one and the same maybe it maybe it's not maybe there's a regime change that that occurs and someone else now needs to have their stamp on, on it but uh, I could be wrong well, and which one becomes canon? I mean, like to take it away from superhero movies, I look at the Halloween movies, for instance. Sure. Where you've got the original John Carpenter Halloween and then Halloween 2, Halloween 3, Halloween 4, The Curse of Michael Myers, Halloween <laughs> H2O, on and on and on. Right? And then at some point, and, someone decides, you know what? I'm just going to pretend that none of those happened. I'm just well, doing my own thing. Then, yeah. Yeah. Well, then they remade Halloween, the first Halloween with Rob Zombie you know it was probably like 12 13 years ago and then he made a halloween too and then that was that miramax owned the rights uh or not miramax but weinstein owned the rights and then uh something happened with weinstein i don't know probably not a, a good time to talk about it and well, then blumhouse basically pretended that halloween's two through infinity never existed and also the rob zombie ones never existed and they basically made the new halloween uh which came out two years ago which basically is a direct sequel only to the very first Halloween from what was it, 1977? This and this just happened again recently, of course, with the latest uh, Terminator movie. The latest Terminator movie Correct. goes comes, goes right. You know, it's like, hey, we're picking up right after Terminator 2. So any movies, of which there were a few, uh, they they don't exist. They don't exist in the universe. We're just picking right up from Terminator 2. Here we go. Yeah, and I mean, like you know, to me, it's. On the one hand, does it matter to me that I went and saw all those Terminator movies in the theater and that they aren't really part of the Sarah Connor story? Eh, who cares? Yeah, and I mean, like, even though I'm not a giant fan of all the Marvel movies, I I can appreciate the immense amount of work that went into story building and basically making the most cohesive story world that they could make over the course of, what was it, like 27 movies? It was something ridiculous, right? Mm. Versus... The DC Cinematic Universe, which like, you know, you got your Christopher Nolan movies, which weren't that long ago. And then you got your Zack Snyder movies, which kind of pretend the Christopher Nolan movies don't exist. And then you got movies like Joker that are just kind of floating out in, in the universe all by themselves. And also Suicide Squad. I mean, like in the last decade, we've had three Jokers. <laughs> <laughs> Three yeah. completely different interpretations. We've had Jared Leto and Heath Ledger and Joaquin Phoenix. To, and to, to be fair, it's about know. the same time span for I think three Spider-Men though too, because of the whole issue with 
uh, the correct Sony. Uh, plural yeah. is Spider-Man's. By oh, the way. Spider-Man's. Sorry. Okay. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, uh, I don't necessarily see this this slowing down. And uh, in the interest of disclosure, of course, uh, Man of Steel. We did not bring it up or mention it here because they were a client of Hot Red Cameras. But hey, uh, in case you're making more DC movies and you need more stuff, please hit us up. I'm happy to. Sure. You make make more stuff. And, for, and, for, and for we love DC. Larry Fong and Larry, if you're listening. Hi, Larry. Hey, Larry. We, we, th- we think the world of Larry Fong and his cinematography. And he didn't shoot Man of Steel, but he did shoot Batman versus Superman and Justice League. And and uh, I, anyway, uh, DC, I, I think it's I think it's wonderful because as as great a job as Marvel does and all the, the billions of dollars they make is wonderful. But there are other stories out there. Great stories. And it's wonderful to uh to to get these different takes whether they be darker and moodier or lighter and and you know uh, more levity and everything else so uh so yeah i think that um the even though we've all reached some a level of you know cape fatigue superhero fatigue clearly this is what moviegoers want so i don't see it slowing down oh uh, no absolutely not i'm just curious uh i guess the question that i that i'm kind of raising in my mind is a does canon matter anymore which I, it doesn't have to matter and if you think about even the direct comic book world you know think about like comics like you know just the regular old batman comic coming out and then the dark knight returns coming out and then the killing joke coming out you know like all of those things are in the batman world arkham asylum they all came out within a few years of each other they don't have to coexist they're all different stories they're all different you know views in on a character that that fans like so they don't, there doesn't have to be a coherence, but I'm just interested in when fans demand something like the Snyder Cut and then the studio, I mean, they must have focus grouped it and looked at it and run the numbers and said, there's real money in this and it's worth us doing it. Well, you know, it was just 19 years ago that Lord of the Rings uh, came out and I haven't heard anyone calling for a reboot, but, you know, <laughs> if those fans are, are hardcore enough. Uh, Amazon is making one, actually. Are they really? Amazon's yeah. rebooting Lord of the Rings? Oh, God, I hadn't heard that. I mean, I, I think it's something within the Tolkien universe, but yeah. All right. Wow. Okay. So, uh, so everything that was old is new again, including Lord of the Rings. I, I didn't know Including that. things that aren't really, I mean, that are kind of old, but not that old. L- like Lord not, of the Rings is pretty old. And now it's 20 years, basically, since the, the uh, debut of, of that. So it's, yeah. Uh, anyway. So, uh, hey, let's get to the interview with Jas Shelton. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So uh, we are here via Zoom with Jas Shelton, cinematographer Jas Shelton. Uh, thank you so much for making the time to do this uh, with us. Firstly, before we even get into anything, congratulations on your Emmy nomination for Homecoming. Thank you very much. Uh, season two. And I, I kind of wanted to ask you, like, uh, what were the what was it like filling the shoes of season one being that season one and season two look very different visually there? It's, it's a totally different visual signature on it and and i really do feel like each season has a very specific signature what was it like kind of coming in when when that had been developed and what was it like kind of deciding not to go with the signature that season one had gone with well there's a there's a few interesting variables the first of which is the director of photography from season one is todd campbell who is one of my best friends he was the best man at my wedding we kind of grew up we grew up together in the film business so when I did get the call to do season, you know, and I was a big fan of season one, and of course I love Todd and I love the show, and I thought it was amazing. So when I got the call about the potential of doing season two, it was really, you know, it was a unique and amazing opportunity on many levels, but also being able to, you know, have that close relationship with Todd and to kind of pick up where he left off was um, a unique opportunity. I mean, did you have discussions with him? Because, again, like that, the first season had, I thought, a, a very, very different look from what you did. Your season, I think, is a lot darker. 
just in terms of the amount of light going going on in it and and i feel like it had a real signature it was a lot of correct me if i'm wrong because you obviously know and i don't but it was like a lot of kind of wide angle lenses for a lot of stuff but then like zoom lenses used in like active zooms uh going on in very specific moments in the series uh it just it just had a different a different vibe to it what was the uh decision behind making a season two that that felt you know i mean it doesn't feel like a different universe than the first one but it definitely has a, a, a its own look yeah well it's interesting you should say that because i think the very first conversation I had or meeting even with Kyle, the director who I know and have worked with and with Mike and Eli, who are the show writers, runners, creators, the very first conversation was how do we maintain continuity with season one? We love season one. Obviously it's incredibly visually dynamic and stylized and all these things. How can we maintain and have continuity with that yet create something new? You know, that was literally the jumping off point. And the thing that we kind of collectively came up with together and that I pitched in that first meeting is, that, you know, they used and this is probably the primary difference. And it kind of speaks to what you're talking about is, you know, they uh, they use the different aspect ratios for the different time periods or timelines yeah. within the film. And, you know, we had a similar element in season two with Janelle in terms of being Jackie and not having her memory. And that's, you know, cutting against flashing back in time before she lost her memory. So rather than use different aspect ratios, we chose to use a different color palette. And what we intentionally did is like all of Jackie's flashback from the moment she wakes up in the boat, we wanted to be this very dark, as you suggested, very dark, gothic, blue tone, cyan kind of visual atmosphere to it. That would, and smoky, too. Like, it looked hazy yes, everywhere. Yes, very hazy. And that would cut against the look that we took from season one, which was more of that brighter, sun-kissed look of kind of the Geist building and the Geist headquarters and of Hong's storyline. So the device was, rather than you use aspect ratios, was to use this different kind of color palette as well as, you know, like you said, even it was darker and moodier in terms of its lighting and a little more silhouetted. So we try to use that to kind of more subtly separate the two time frames. And I think that's kind of the main, in my opinion, um, one of the main differences between season one and season two. But then we did want to have continuity with season one. So we used a similar lens choices and some of the offset framing and some of mm. those elements worked their way into season two as well, which I think, you know, to the advantage uh, of the uh, of the storyline. Well, and I felt like the season one, kind of the offset framing that you're describing, I don't know because I didn't work on it and I don't know, you're the first person I've spoken to who did, but like, uh, I assume that some of that came from Sam Esmail who had, uh, you know, kind of been a pioneer in offset framing with uh, Mr. Robot. And I feel like with this season, it's definitely there, but it doesn't, it feels different. Obviously, you know, you have a different eye, but it, it, it feels a little bit different. Can you tell me like when you're, when you're creating that, like, is that just something that like you're lining it up and you're like, okay, well, here's the normal fr- version of it you know move it off to the side or whatever or is like the way that the offset is created is that something that's that's planned specifically or has like some kind of a subtextual meaning behind it that you're following i think it definitely has a subtextual meaning so going into those scenes particularly these dialogue heavy scenes which there were in season one even more so and i think it was kind of really born well obviously 
Sam and Todd, both from their Mr. Robot, you know, it was kind of, you know, they kind of pioneered it there and it continued into Homecoming. But it was very intentional in terms of the particular scenes in which we used it and the particular moments with Jackie and this whole idea of the disorientation of who she is and where she is and trying to figure herself out. So we were trying to really enhance those moments through those long dialogue scenes, you know, by a similar technique. I don't think that we were as adventurous with it as, you know, that, you know I don't know if that's the right adjective, as, or as bold as they were in season one, but we definitely tried to utilize it as much as possible. And I, you know, I think that goes to, to speak to Kyle, the director. I think his style of filmmaking probably, um, not in a good or bad way, but maybe is a little bit more nuanced or subtle in terms of its, uh, you know, in his framing choices than Sam, who I think is, you know, very bold with his framing choices and, you know, will, you know, take things to the extreme. I think Kyle's, you know, has hit somewhere in a little more nuanced version of that, which I think totally worked for the story. So, you know, there's definitely times where we tried to push it harder and make it more disadvantageous or more offset and kind of push the envelope with it. But there were a lot of times where we, you know, trying to find a, a, a kind of a nuanced middle ground so that if you're watching the story that you don't necessarily consciously take notice of the offset framing. It's, you know, trying to make it more subconscious. And I think there was that intention as well. And you also do a lot of like split screen kind of stuff. Was that something that was the, uh, an editorial choice or is that something that you knew on the day? Like we're going to, this is going to be a split screen. We need to make these framings match. Well, there were two things I'd say. Number one, there is some split screen. Uh, well, three things really. There is some split screen sequences in season one. So it was derivative of that. Oh, for sure. And then also just of that era, you know, some of the reference uh, movies that we looked at, and I think maybe Brian De Palma. Yeah, yeah, some of the 70s era movie making split screen. So there was that. And then the director, Kyle, who this is my third project with, ironically, has been talking about wanting to do split screen sequences for three projects. So <laughs> years before we ever got into this, he has been dying for an opportunity to use split screen. Um, and of course, you know, this provided that exact opportunity. <laughs> So that was a realization of his dream of doing split screen. So all those three factors, you know, and uh, brought us to those elements. And it was very planned out. You know, we knew specifically what sequences we wanted to use split screen in and framed specifically for the split screens. I think, you know, I don't remember exactly, but I think there might be, you know, a few sequences that made it in that necessarily, you know, were a little more um, discovered in the edit room. But I would say at least 80% of that was very crafted, choreographed, planned for, framed for, etc. Interesting. And, uh, you know, you bring up De Palma and immediately I was like, of course, De Palma with the zooms, the zooms that you would use. Now, what does that mean to you? Like when you're going in for a zoom like that, like what what is it that you're trying to show us? Because it's used very specifically and judiciously. It's not like a Paul Greengrass movie that's full of snap zooms or something. It's like slow, not a dolly, slow push in zoom. And it, it happens every now and then. So I'm assuming that those are extraordinarily planned. Those were indeed extraordinarily planned. And I think the intention with those shots, I mean, once again, obviously we're drawing on the references of De Palma and, uh, you know, 70s uh, style filmmaking. But the idea behind them were the moments in particular we wanted to be more voyeuristic and kind of have a perspective that we're watching from the outside looking in and then, you know, collapse that perspective in with the zoom. And so I think, you know, a good example is, uh, I think it's episode maybe at the end of episode one, where they're going into the hotel room and, you know, we're watching from across the parking lot, I guess, of the, of the motel from the adjacent um, balcony and we're following them and they're tracking. And we, you know, you, it, the whole shot plays out in that one zoom. And I remember specifically, even I was like, Kyle, are you sure you want to play out this entire scene? And you know, this one zoom shot, you know, I understand the perspective and we want this voyeuristic quality to it. And then we want to land and find them at this door. 
but you know, maybe we should get a cutaway or maybe we should just get a little bit of coverage. But uh, Kyle was very committed to playing out these scenes in Zooms. And, and, you know, also to Kyle's credit, we had done the same thing in Stanford Prison Experiment, a movie we did a couple years ago, where we played out yeah. a couple scenes in Zoom shots as well, just one long continuous Zoom. So once again, it's also kind of a stylistic choice of Kyle's, um, but also intentional and deliberate in its use in Homecoming season two. I feel like doing something like that as a oneer is is kind of its own uh, high wire act. It's it's like a high wire act on a high wire act because like you know getting something in a oneer is hard enough, but then add a, add a mechanical zoom into it that could go could go a little too far, could not go far enough. It is, you know? and then you add in a dolly shot on top of that, so it's a dolly then a, with a zoom, and then it's a oneer, and you know all these moving parts. It's yeah, it's it's it, there there were some very ambitious shots in the show <laughs> for sure. You have a lot of feature experience. And um, this isn't your first TV thing. You, you've, you've done some other TV stuff. But could you talk a little bit about, from your perspective, like what's the difference between working features, working on features and working on television, especially a show uh, like this, which I feel like looks as good as anything you would see in a movie theater if we were allowed to go to movie theaters? Um, it's super fucking hard. I'll say that. <laughs> Crazy hard. If you remember, we, we talked about rest stop. Like it's, it is like that. It's, it's that same experience. Um, for our listeners, by the way, uh, <laughs> Jazz shot a movie called Rest Stop 2, Don't Look Back, which was part of Raw Feed, and I directed the third one, which was Alien Raider. So I was actually on his set, and those movies were shot in 15 days. Yes. Crazy. Insane. Um, but, you know, it's like it's elevated for Homecoming. It's like elevated TV, and the it's very ambitious visually, and, you know, it's like a lot of these very complex crafted shots, camera works, wonders. I mean, it's very time consuming, but you're still on a TV schedule. How, how many days per episode would you say? And the episodes are what, like 20 minutes, 30 minutes? They're like 30 minute episodes. And I, I'm going to say six or seven days per episode. Um, yeah, that's tight. Maybe seven. And so it was, it was really, really tight and really ambitious and extremely difficult. And we did some really long days. I mean, we were, I think we were shooting, you know, 12 to 14 hour days. And, um, you know, obviously I, my, the movie experience, it's definitely, particularly the bigger movies, the pace is much more civilized, I guess you would say. <laughs> um, but it was really, it's, it is a absolute real challenge. And I think, you know, I think the, the only way we made it is a couple of things. I think number one is Kyle and I approached it, the seven, seven half hour episodes I think it was 40 days of shooting total. Maybe we can do the math from that, extrapolate the per episode, whatever. <laughs> it was over my head at this point. Um, but we uh, we approached it like a feature. We're like, this is a we're gonna shoot it like a feature film. You know, we're gonna block shoot episodes or you know things from different episodes at this one location. It's not like we're going back to locations. So we really approached it like a movie. I mean, so much so that I kind of called it a movie. And I feel like that the other television work I have done, which hasn't been a lot, but the ones the stuff that I have done has been with like the same director a limited amount of episodes. So we've kind of always had that kind of movie approach to it. So rarely have I done the more episodic where you're, you know, rotating DPs and different directors. I've done a, a hint of that and it's, it's definitely its own kind of beast as well. But I think by approaching it like a movie, number one, and number two, Kyle and I having this history of working together, having done two other movies was a huge factor because I think there's a shorthand that has developed over the course of those two movies. I think Kyle and I share a lot of uh, similar aesthetic interest if you will so you know like in pre-production like we were able like we really really planned the hell out of the show like we got really into that minutia in pre-production which i think if we hadn't done there's no way we would have photographed it in those 40 days and then also even on set like a you know that you know kyle and i are because of that history are able to pivot and think on our feet fairly quickly and 
also Kyle has a lot of trust in me, you know, like there's a long leash there. And so it's like, I can run and get things set up and, you know, work ahead. And so there's, you know, I think those factors help us get it done. I honestly, otherwise don't know how we would have accomplished as complex of a show in that time frame. otherwise. It is complex and it's got, you know, just such precision camera work and, you know, it, it does feel so planned and so tight, uh, really, really well made. So I feel like this is a good, a good time to kind of go back to the beginnings with you and your, your career. And I always ask DPs, when you first read a script, what is it that you see? Like if you're talking to a director that you've never worked with before or something, or, or you're just given a script, what do you see when, when you're reading it? And, and I used to kind of say, is it more about composition or more about lighting? I'm kind of giving that up because enough people corrected me that that's just not how, how their brains work. But, but I'm just kind of interested in, in, in where the process of turning more into pictures starts with you. Yeah. Um, I would say when I'm reading a script, I look for a kind of a, a jumping off point or a point of reference. And it could be a single photograph or it could be a painting, something kind of to me that sets the tone for what I think would be appropriate for that material. Yeah. And then I kind of build on that. So, you know, like there is a, oh my God, I wonder if I have it. I should have it. There is a a Picasso painting, and it's not one of his more contemporary abstract one. It's a very, it's one of his early paintings, and it's this very dark kind of gothic look to it. Also, I'm not just about back at homecoming and kind of as a point of reference, and also uh, the the paintings of Odiliani. So you have these kind of very like these very dark tones and these dark atmospheres, and and Todd Heido, some of this photography. So I find like references. Sometimes they're movies or sometimes they could be commercials and sometimes and you know for homecoming it was it was two or three things a combination of still photography and and paintings. And so and kind of use that as a starting point and then build from there in terms of you know if this is if this kind of encapsulate the tone and look of what I think the movie should be then you start adding layers to it like maybe you know the camera works this maybe it's handheld or maybe it's more static and deliberate it's on the dolly and and, and but it all starts with that kind of that core that kernel mm-hmm. of that you know, that one inspirational, I guess, for lack of a better term. Well, when you find that image, are you looking for the color palette? Are you looking for the framing? Are you looking for like, what are the things that you look to emulate? I would say it's more, it's, it's not that specific. It's more of an atmosphere. Um, if that makes any sense at all. And it could be, and it, it, sometimes it's a combination of elements. It could be framing or it could be lighting or, you know, usually it's a combination of two or three things that's in this still image or in this couple minutes of a film or whatever. There's like two or three elements that come together. And like you said, it might be framing, it might be lighting, it might be color, it might be a combination of those things. But I feel like I take that and that's the, that's the first brick, so to speak, <laughs> in building the bridge. So let's kind of go back a little bit in in your history. When was the first moment that being a cinematographer occurred to you as a thing you could do with your life? Like when when did you get the bug or even just the inkling of the bug? Well, I grew up in a really small town in East. Well, I'm still growing up, but I started growing (laughs) up in a really small town in East Texas. And um, I know there was a couple of like projects that were, I think, for like English class, maybe. And that we would make with a, you know, a VHS camera probably, or maybe VHS older than that. I don't even know if that technology would be older than VHS, <laughs> but like went out and shot like these little short films. And I think that was kind of the start of being interested in film and photography. Um, and this was in high school. And then after high school, I went to the University of Texas. And this is interesting. I was a musician and I had um, some friends that had a band and they needed a bass player in that band. 
at the University of Texas. So my whole reason for going to the University of Texas was to be the place, bass player in this band. I had no academic aspirations whatsoever <laughs> other than to go to Austin, Texas, which would seem like a really cool place and to play music. It is a cool place. It is. Um, however, the, the, uh, the guitar player in the band was in the film program at the University of Texas. And so when I got there my freshman year and I started playing with this band and started taking classes, I'm like, wait a second, there's like, you can actually go to school for filmmaking. And oh, wow. I was already interested in photography. Um, and I actually, I think I immediately, I was like a photojournalism major to start because of photography. But that was kind of my first introduction to the, to the even idea being, you know, coming from East Texas, the idea that you could actually study this and pursue it and in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so you went to University of Texas's film program. Did you get in? I did not get in immediately because my grades were so shitty because I was busy <laughs> playing music at the time. But I, uh, I was shooting all of these short films for like, you know, for these other students who were in the film program. And of course, I was so interested in it and like, you know, learning and reading and doing all these things. And so I would they would ask me to shoot their films. So I was already shooting all these student films at the University of Texas. And by nature of shooting these films, they finally let me in. But I don't think I got into like my junior year. It was really, really? competitive and there was like only so many spaces available. And I really had to like camp. Like how did that start? How did you start shooting shooting films if you weren't in the program? Well, I had the friend in the band, Robbie Chance, who was he had, you know, his student films he was shooting. So I shot his student film. I was shooting. But I was also shooting like you know, some music videos for the band and I was shooting uh, some other stuff outside of school. And so I would shoot Robbie's film and they're like, wait, you know, this looks way better than <laughs> anything else we're doing over here. So then all the other, you know, uh, filmmakers or students, I guess, started requesting that I shoot their films, even though I wasn't in the program. So I kind of got in that way into the program. Were you specifically interested at that time, uh, mostly in cinematography or did you kind of play around with uh, directing, you know, production design into the other crafts? I was, I was really interested in photography and cinematography. I mean, that was really my main interest. That being said, I did direct and photograph a film that got nominated for a student Academy award, which is a little, a little known fact, which had to be like, I don't know, 96, 98, like it was a long time ago. But I think through the process of making that film, I was like, oh, the part of this that I find really interesting is the photography part of it. Like having mm-hmm. having directed the film and gone through the whole process, I was like, that's the part that I am interested in and doing. And I mean, the short films, it's very, it's like the, the storyline is, is razor thin, <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all about the photography. Um, so I think that was kind of a turning point going, okay, this is the thing that I'm interested in about filmmaking is the cinematography. And so what did you do once you got out of school? Did you move to a bigger market or, you know, what, where did you go? How did you, how'd you get started? Well, at the time in Austin, Texas, it was, the, it was kind of before all the tax incentives started. And so Austin was kind of considered the third coast at the time. So there was production in New York and Los Angeles and Austin. And there was always like two or three, you know, studio movies being shot in Austin at this time, which would be the late 90s, um, mm-hmm. early 2000s. And so while I was still in school, because it took me six years to get through school, which I barely got through. Me too. Yes. And I took the long track. As I started working on films, you know, first it started in the summer and then I started like missing school, which is one of the reasons it took me six years to graduate because I started missing school and working on these studio movies as a lighting technician which is where I really kind of got my entry point. So I was working as a lighting technician and got into the Texas local lighting technicians union. I think either, you know, right before I graduated or overlapping somehow therewith. Um, But there was a couple years of when I was trying to finish school and working on these movies and shooting a lot of like independent little indies and short films and things like that. 
I'm kind of looking at what at what you worked on back then. So that would be stuff like Doctor T and the Women and uh, the Lady Killers and the Life of David Gale, stuff like that. Right, Mis- all... Miss Congeniality, Friday Night Lights. Yes, all those movies. Yeah. Was Robert Rodriguez already set up in Austin at that time? He was in there, and I did work on a little bit on those first Spy Kids movies. I did some rigging for those. Also, like uh, Richard Linkletter is also based, I think, to this day in Austin. Yeah, yeah, he's still there and has his little compound there. I don't think that I ever worked on a Richard Linkletter movie. Um, I think, yeah, for some reason, those that didn't overlap. Um, There's still time. There is still time. <laughs> my wife did. I think my wife, who I met in Austin, is it was or is was a camera assistant. And I think her movie was her, that she ever did was Dazed and Confused, ironically, oh, which, wow. is, which is a pretty cool claim to fame. Legendary. Legendary, exactly. Jess, let me jump in here real quick. Uh, Ben mentioned Lady Killers. Did you work on Lady Killers, the Coen Brothers movie? I did, yes. Oh, right on. Because so uh, I'm looking at your IMDb right now. Second unit DP uh, opposite, what, uh, Roger Deakins on first unit? (laughs) That was a little later on in the process. And it wasn't, I think, what I mostly did, that's a glorified second unit credit, if I remember correctly, is I think I went out and shot visual effects plates. Um, All right. Yes. yes. And I happen to know the producer, John Cameron. So he kind of got me in there and I had, you know, a very quick, very quick 10 minute conversation with Roger. Of course, I was completely, (laughs) you know, starstruck, speechless and intimidated um, about, you know, you know what they were doing, what lenses they were using and how they were photographing and went out and shot. I mean, you know, like tiled plates in the stadium and some background plates and things like that. But that was my work on Lady Killers. Yes. (laughs) So that whole time that you're working on on those projects, though, including stuff like Later Killers, you're DPing stuff on your own. Is it mostly out of Austin at that time, or it was it- mostly out of Austin? And I think in 2001, I kind of got to a point where I'm like, all the DPs that are shooting all the stuff here that I'm working on are all coming from Los Angeles. I don't think it's that way now, and I could be wrong, but I felt like at the time, if you wanted to be a director of photography, you know, and wanted to shoot more than like regional commercials and short films and some of the things I was doing that I needed to move to Los Angeles. So in 2001, I made the move to LA, but I was still back and forth going to Austin. I was a starving DP in LA, but I was working (laughs) as a lighting technician. I'd go back and do, I think I went back and did Friday Night Lights where I was uh, the rigging best boy, but also got to do some visual effects second unit work on that as well. Um, So, you know, it it was kind of that bridge of still working as a lighting technician, but also shooting, getting these second unit opportunities, shooting independent films, things like that. So what was the thing that kind of broke you out of having to go back? And I mean, not that there's anything wrong with being a lighting technician or a best boy or any of those things. I, of I will say this. There is many, many times I envy my days as a lighting technician at Gaffer when I'm on set <laughs> getting my ass handed to me. And I'm like, God, man, why did I ever leave? I could be just like, you know, plugging in some lights and chilling on set instead of like getting my heavy weighs the crown. Yeah, I know. Um, it's crazy. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, actually, you know, we should probably get more people like that on the show because there are people who make a, a life out of being, you know, a camera assistant, maybe move up to being an operator. And that's, you know, they get in the union, they make great money, they work on amazing stuff. It's very creative and fulfilling. And and I don't mean to, you know, but by, by dint of the fact that we mostly talk to cinematographers, that doesn't mean that those jobs aren't awesome and aren't fulfilling and aren't creative. Absolutely. Um, you know, some, some amazing people, but, um, like what was the thing that kind of pushed you into not needing to do that? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know what? I don't, I don't feel like there was one moment in time where it was like, Oh, I'm no longer a lighting technician. And now I'm a DP. I felt like it was such a slow, gradual transition, but I felt like around, I think probably the thing 
maybe it was around the rest stop time where I started getting some more independent film opportunities. I did the garage, I did rest stop, I did this this Group 101, kind of the spec commercial program with a director friend of mine. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, Group 101 Spots. It was, uh, they got like uh, ad agency executives to come in and uh, and give copy that hadn't been chosen by the client. But so like if they would have pitched a Nike commercial and it got pretty far up the chain and then Nike said no. So these Group 101 Spots would have directors literally pay to go make stuff with those agency people to build a commercial rig. Yes, exactly. It was a really cool program. It's disappointing it's not around anymore as far as I know because I think that I would say that and those independent films had to be the biggest uh, transition point because it was from Group 101 that I kind of got my first agent, um, mm. Greg D'Alessandro, which is which at the time was called Sheldon Prosnet, which is now called Artistry, which they are super awesome. And that was kind of, I got an agent. I started getting some, a little, some, you know, a little bit bigger commercials. I started getting some independent films. And at that point, even though I wasn't making a ton of money, I kind of stopped working as a, a lighting technician or a gaffer um, mm-hmm. and kind of worked exclusively as a DP. And so there was a, you know, a couple of year periods where I was, you know, scraping by financially, but just exclusively shooting. And then I think that... The and I can't remember. I went to Texas and I did these these movies with Kevin Sorbo, which were also very kind of rest stop ish in their kind of genre, low budget B movie type world, but were you know fun to shoot and a great learning opportunity and you know shooting on film and all these things. But right after that is when I met the Duplass brothers, and I would say probably meeting the Duplass. If I had to say one thing that had the biggest impact, it was meeting and working with the Duplass brothers. Yeah, so you shot Cyrus. Had you shot anything for them before Cyrus? I have not, and I have a good Duplass Brothers story. And that I want it. I want it right now, yeah. This is a good story. So Jay and Mark shot Puffy Chair, and if you haven't seen Puffy Chair, it's a wonderful movie. Mm-hmm. I have seen it, yeah. And Puffy Chair was out on the festival circuit, and my cousin-in-law was a friend of theirs from New York, and she's like, my friends have this movie. It's screening at, you know, the L.A. Art Institute or whatever. It's like, and, and she wanted to, you know, she's like, please go with me. I don't want to go, you know, my, and I begged me to go to this thing, and I didn't want to go. I tried to get out of it, and I went to the screening, and I sat there, and I watched this movie, Puffy Chair, that Jay had shot. And I was blown away by it. And I was so impressed with it that after the screening, I went up and I met Jerry and I was like, listen, man, I'm a cinematographer. And I have to say, I love the way that was photographed. I loved it was so rough and raw and from the hip and just like, un, you know, completely unpremeditated. And I was like, it was perfect. I was like, I don't care. I would not change. If I were shooting that sh- your movie, I would not change a single thing. And Jay's like, Jay's like, I have been for a year going to film festivals with his film. And every time I meet a cinematographer, they give me their card and say, that movie looked, you know, terrible. But when you're ready to shoot a real movie, here's my card. And he's like, you're the first DP that has actually complimented me on the way this was photographed. So we obviously became fast friends. And then um, they had Cyrus come up and they asked me to shoot Cyrus, which I, of course, agreed to. But ironically, Cyrus, for, for scheduling reasons, as often happens, got pushed off. And they're like, well, because Cyrus is not happening... We're going to do this little movie back in Louisiana called Dodeca Pentathlon. And once again, it's like, you know, $50,000, $100,000 movie. And maybe you can come shoot it with us. And that will be kind of like a, a warm up, if you will, for lack of a better term for Cyrus. And so I did. I went to Louisiana and we shot Dodeca together. And, uh, and that was my first movie with those guys. Oh, really? 
Can you tell, I mean, like everything I've heard about their style, their method is it's extremely uh, improvisational, but it's not improvisational in a Christopher Guest kind of way because everything they're doing isn't like a, you know, a, a, a comedy in, in that, you know, a broad comedy like what Christopher Guest does. But but like I've even heard that, like, if the scene isn't working, they'll just like power down and leave the set and go figure it out and come back. Uh, what's it like working on on something like that? And, and I'm assuming that their style also has, you know, evolved and tightened up up over time but you know like what, what was it like jumping into that pool I mean it was unique for me at that point you know coming from Group 101 and doing these other movies like you know like Rest Stop they had this very kind of stylistic you know more kind of the homecoming world so it was a departure for me going into what they were doing and I think as from a cinematography standpoint which I think is awesome I mean they're all 100% like you said about improvisation and capturing a moment and so they want the set to be as, as least encumbered by the photographic process as possible. So not only are we shooting with two cameras, but we're shooting, we're lighting globally and to allow the scene to happen. And there's a lot of things that we do that are very different than conventional movie making. For example, we start with close-ups and longer lenses. And so we're on these zoom lenses and we start with the close-ups because they're like that as when they're improvising the scene, often the first take or two is where kind of the magic happens. And so we kind of build the scene, it's lit very globally. You know, and I still try to give it some direction, like an offside key and do some, you know, try to give it some nuance. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is to capture these, this improvised moment. And it's completely improvised. I mean, like one take to the next could be radically different. And then, like you said, they'll go away and converse. And once we kind of build the scene out, then we start backing out and go, okay, let's get a medium shot here. Let's get a master shot here and kind of build out the coverage. But it all starts with two cameras, long lens close-ups improvised and then mm. and then that's you know that's and then you build the scene back it's almost like a reverse engineering of how you would shoot a scene conventionally meaning you start with the master shot and then you go into coverage and then into close-ups yeah. it is it, it is literally a dead reverse of that and i mean like by the time they get to the wide shot have they kind of in their heads edited the way the scene is going to be and made all those choices so you know takes you know three and seven are useless but you know what like they they know exactly which takes of the close-ups are going to construct the scene they absolutely do and you know and some and, and then sometimes it's not that they're like okay well this scene three they did this and scene seven they did this and we like both of them so we're going to do a master and run both those lines and mm-hmm. just to make sure we cover ourselves in the edit room but it is it is like you said like if they as the scene develops and then they're like they'll they'll go and then converse and they're like well this this line they said this and we want the scene to go this direction and so sometimes the scene bears very little resemblance to what's on the page or what was in the first take by the you know mm-hmm. 10 like 10 takes later by the time we actually kind of find what it is so it is it's a very kind of loose wild fly by the seat of your pants approach which is really kind of, I mean, and I'll say this about the Duplass brothers, like, you know, a lot of people criticize the, you know, like it's like the photography is not stylized or nuanced and it's very documentary and rough hewn, which I think works for that material. When so I was like completely on board to do it, but it's also very, it's gratifying in a different way. It's gratifying in the fact that it is you're capturing these moments that are happening so spontaneously. In contrast to Homecoming, where you have a very deliberate shot with a very deliberate move, with the actor standing here saying very deliberate lines, it's a completely different experience, but equally as gratifying, if that makes any sense. Do you feel like in photographing the scenes for the Duplass brothers, do you feel like you sort of become a character in it? Like the point of view becomes a character in the scene. And so the choices you make maybe in a, in a weird way have like a more of a character implication or a, a fingerprint of characterness within those scenes. 
I mean, I would, it's possible, but I, you know, we are very consciously trying to not have anything be premeditated. I guess that's my point because you're reacting in real time to stuff that actors are doing. So if an actor decides to walk across the room suddenly and you have to figure out how to follow them or, you know, whatever it is, if you're handheld or if you're on sticks, whatever it is, does the camera then start to kind of take on a character? Like, does it start to feel sort of like we're discovering this in real time with you, I guess is is the question. And, and, yeah, and I, I think you're right. Almost like from a, like a documentary, like we're discovering this together, this point of view, rather than it being so objective like in a normal movie i think you're right and that it is more subjective and immersive in the fact that you're kind of discovering what's happening as it's unfolding you know rather than being premeditated the uh one thing is like we have operators come in and work with us on the duplash brothers movies and you know like after a take you kind of get you know what's going to happen and so even if the actor is going to go from point a to point b or pick up the cup and a normal operator, their normal instincts are like, okay, I'm going to preemptively pan and I'm going to preemptively going to tilt down to the cup because I know they're going to grab it. So we had to like untrain these operators. They're like, we know you know what they're going to do, but you have, still have to shoot as if you don't know what they're going to do. <laughs> so we want you to actually have them leave the frame and have to catch up with them. And when they go down for the cup, we don't want you to like preemptively go down to the cup. We want you to like, oh shit, they're going down to the cup and then go down and find it. Like you had to literally untrain the operators back to as if it was the very first take. And it's really, ironically, you'd be surprised, it's really hard to do. And I will say this, this is an interesting fact as well. Probably the best Duplass operator we ever had was none other than Todd Campbell, who shot season one of Homecoming. Because he was like, I mean, talk about off the cuff, like, man, like, I would, you know, he would like completely like abandon all convention in his Mm -hmm. operating, which is exactly what they loved and we loved and... So he was like the go-to operator, ironically, for years with the Duplass brothers. Oh, wow. Before he went on to his own, you know, fame and stardom with <laughs> Sam Ishmael. Well, it seems like it would be kind of liberating on the one hand, and also like you take pride in being able to do things in 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 that very particular way. And they're asking you to not do the things, the the very things that you are trained to do that are drilled into you. Oh yeah, I mean and like. They, sometimes they go, you know, this looks too good. Like it looks, and we would have to like either turn off lights or change the set dressing. They're like, cause it looks, it looks too stylistic or deliberate or photographic. Like I think even for Cyrus, we shot test on film and we walked, you know, we did, we shot, and that was one of the first movies that when red camera first came out, we ended up shooting the movie on red, but we shot 35, 16 in red. And we went in and looked at him at photo Kim. And I remember Mark and Jay looking at the 35 test we shot and they're like, they're like, oh my God, it looks like a movie. And then their second thing is like, we don't want it to look like a movie. We want it to look like real life. So of course we ended up on the red. And no, and, and almost like that, you're, it speaks to exactly because I'm sitting there going, oh my God, this looks incredible. Please let's shoot this on 35. But you know, you trust them, you trust their directors and you trust their instincts. And they're like, no, 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 that looks too good. It looks like a movie. It looks like a convention. This is like real life in the moment, you know, home video. I mean, they would probably shoot on home video. If, you know, if we had to do it all over again. The puffy chair was shot like on mini DV. If I'm it was, mistaken. yeah, on mini DV. And that was that was one camera with Jay. And so I think when we started shooting together, they really wanted to shoot with two cameras because they were really into this idea of capturing both sides of the performance at once and cross shooting, which is also very difficult to do, in my opinion. But that was part of the when we started working together is, you know, is trying to evolve what they had done in puffy chair in a way where we could use two cameras and it could be a studio movie yet still had all the continuity of what they did and you know the the charm of what they had done on puffy chair uh, I feel like we could talk about the Duplass forever you also shot their uh, TV series togetherness I did uh, season one of togetherness yeah 
But I also wanted to talk to you about Keanu, the Key and Peele movie, which is, you know, right on the heels of Key and Peele, in a way, reinventing sketch comedy for television and then jumping off of that and making that movie. But pre, obviously, Jordan Peele doing, uh, you know, Get Out and, and all the stuff he's, he's known for now. Can you talk a little bit about like what it was like working with people who were mostly used to doing like really short snippets of comedy and did that have an effect on your job at all or you know was it because you were mostly working with the director how much did them as sketch comedians uh, play into that process for you I will say the only thing that I <laughs> I remember is that Jordan also wrote the movie and there was a lot of rewriting happening as we were shooting and I remember the first AD, Stacy, whose name I can't remember her last name, wonderful first AD, but she was like, she had this thing, she's like, gentlemen, put your pencils down, because they, <laughs> they would be like, oh, we gotta run off, we gotta rewrite this thing, and of course, it was a really tight schedule as well, and she was always trying to get, pull them back on set, you know, to actually shoot the scenes. I don't know that the sketch element had that much of an impact on the movie. I mean, I felt like, you know, working with Peter Atencio, who had done all that stuff with them, they all had like a pretty good shorthand of building scenes and putting scenes together. Like they already had such a kind of intuitive way of working together that I just kind of like, I felt like I kind of fell in behind that and just kind of mm. supported it. I will say this too about Keanu. Uh, toward the end of Keanu, Jordan Peele came to me. He's like, I have this script that I'm going to direct. <laughs> And it's called Get Out. And um, I would love for you to read it. And he, he pitched it to me. And I was like, that sounds like a really bizarre movie. However, I was already uh, committed to go do a Will Ferrell movie back in L.A. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't even really take it seriously. But I remember it's so funny hearing Jordan tell me about that, that idea and that script and the fact that he was going to shoot it, you know, later that year, the beginning of next year. And. I can't like I can't remember. They, I don't. They didn't shoot it in Atlanta, but they shot it somewhere in Georgia. But pitching mm -hmm. the idea to me, I remember listening to the idea. Is like that sounds really bizarre, and I can't <laughs> imagine how that's going to work as a movie. And of course, it went on to be Get Out. Yeah, no, it's an amazing movie. I love that movie. Yeah, so it's much. incredible. But uh, we 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 jumped over the Stanford Prison Experiment, which which I also feel like is you know uh, of of your filmography. It's one of the ones that just really uh, jumped out at me. And it, I I just want to understand what was it like when you read it? Like, how did you react to the material, and how did you go about building that the the look of it? Well, I will say this: Stanford Prison Experiment probably is the my most favorite movie for me personally that I photographed. I just I. I don't know. I love the way it came out. I think the, the, the intention, you know, you, you go into these movies with these plans and these intentions and sometimes they are realized and sometimes they fall short and sometimes they evolve into something different. I felt like Stanford was one of those unique projects where we went in with a very deliberate look and idea and intention and it, and it really fucking worked. And, um, in my opinion, but I read the script. The script is, you know, it's it's a, it's kind of a monolithic story. Like it's and it all happens within that one space. So already you're you know, at a disadvantage as a cinematographer. Like, okay, eighty percent of this movie is going to take place in this white room. Okay, yeah. how do we go from there? And the thing that I pitched to Kyle, which I think that he kind of riffed on and we really built into, is like let's start from this very wider objective point of view. And as the movie progresses and derails and things fall apart and within the experiment. Let's build into a very kind of subjective, handheld point of view. So start wide, wider lenses, let scenes play out wide shots. We did some shots with the zoom where they played out. By the end of the movie, we're handheld, lights, lenses, which are like a lenses, but they have like these macro ability. So you can go, you know, you can get really close with them more so than you can with a conventional lens. And I mean, we were like in as close 
and as gritty and as raw. And you talk about having, you know, being immersed as a camera operator in yeah. in the scenes. Like I've never been that like in it. And in, in you know, and those phenomenal actors, these kids, I mean, they were just so raw and powerful. And then being in there handheld with these lenses, my focus puller, Troy Blishock, who has been with me for years, I mean, I almost murdered him with those lenses because we're going from like, you know, medium <laughs> shots into like three inches from people's eye as things are going down. Um, so anyway, it's I, a gorgeous look, though. Thank you. So I felt like that that photographic approach in tandem with the kind of look we developed for it just really worked for that movie, in my opinion. I mean, I could. And it's based on a true story, correct? It's absolutely based on a true story. We had Phil Zimbardo, the actual professor at Stanford, I think came to set like once or twice. And he was also at the premiere at Sundance when it when it screened. And was he like, that's exactly what we did? He yeah, yeah. He like, I mean, he he uh, he does not mince words. I mean, it, it derailed, and a lot of it. I think he gets criticized. He gets criticized for letting the experiment go on too long when it became kind of violent and derailed and things like that. But I think the movie does a good job of capturing like he's a scientist and he is watching this unfold. And for him, it's like this golden gem of this experiment, like the the culmination of it. So I can, you know, in the course of you can see why in the course of shooting the movie is like why Phil Zimbardo was so reluctant to pull the plug, even though everybody around him was like, dude, you got to stop this thing. It's going off the rails. But he, you know, in the interest of science, and he's such a consummate scientist and like just couldn't help himself until he basically was forced to. So, I mean, I don't know if any of the heat falls on you when you're on a set that's a true story and one of the actual people the story is about is right there but you know were you ever getting not you wouldn't be getting notes from him but were you ever getting notes that you knew were accuracy specific notes or was that all kind of taken care of at the script stage or whatever i mean that was kyle intentionally was very deliberate about being true to all the details and all the storylines i mean we even the set was built to scale it that set was an exact replica of the the prison that was built in the basement of the Stanford psychology department. Oh, wow. I mean, down to the intricate details. I mean, we built it in such a way that we could take it apart to do some shots and things like that and do some lighting, but it was built to scale and, and the details were all exactly the same. And then when Phil was there, Phil was there as a, as an observer, I, you know, and he was only there for maybe, I would say during the course of filming a couple hours the whole time. So that wasn't really, oh, okay. didn't have that much to say. And, you know, and Kyle is like, has such great attention to detail that I don't, I don't know if there would have been an opportunity, even if, yeah. So I, I guess the big question then is like, how do you take a film that has to be set in a big white room, you know, and there's no way around it. What are the things that you do to make that look more interesting? I mean, I know you, you talked about like, you know, coming up with your strategy for shooting the overall film, but is there like moment to moment ways that you go about in lighting or lensing to make that more interesting? Or does it go against the idea? Is interesting maybe not what you want when you're when you have a movie like this? No, I definitely I can't help myself but go interesting. So like yeah. it, we could have just left like it's all kind of overhead lighting in there. We could have just left it as is, but we didn't. We really tried to build in to give it nuance and to create uh, contrast and depth. And so what we did is like you know it's a white room, but anytime I'm shooting in this white room and I'm not, and it was my gaffer Orlando who's incredible rigged the entire thing with LEDs so that we could turn off sections and turn on sections. So the only light, when you're seeing the image, the only lights that are on are the lights that are on that you're seeing. Everything else is turned off behind us so we have a strong shadow side. And then we would bring in just off camera, like 
solids and, and floppies and flags. So we were building as much contrast as we could. And that's also something we progressed. So we started with it and let it be a little bit more high key and wide and broad. And then as, as we progressed and as the lenses got tighter and as we got closer, we started creating stronger and stronger shadows and more contrast, which, you know, Linus, as we were going tighter and on tighter on these lenses, it allowed us the opportunity to getting closer and closer and closer to shape the lighting more. So, oh, nice. so that, you know, it all kind of worked together and in tandem to, to progress the film and building this contrast. Excellent. Uh, Ilya, you're here. Uh, we, Ilya, I wanted to see if there's anything else you wanted to hit. Uh, is there a particular genre or style or type of project that you haven't gotten to do yet that you're, you want to move into? I felt like I have had, and, and this is in retrospect, because there's been times in my career where I've been like, oh God, I feel so pigeonholed and I want to do something different. But I feel at this point, especially after Homecoming, it's like I've really gotten to touch on a very broad spectrum of projects. And I even shot this show that didn't really get much attention, but it was called Soundtrack on Netflix, which was kind of like a musical, um, which was also really fun to shoot. So I, I you know, I, I, there, I don't feel like there's anything left on the table off the top of my head that I feel really compelled to do. I am supposed to shoot this little independent movie. And this, we talked earlier about Group 101. And the director I worked with was the guy I went to film school with, a director named Lance Larson, super talented director. And he has finally got the financing together for his first movie. And it's like a $1.5 million, $2 million movie that we were supposed to shoot in June and got canceled because of COVID-19, obviously. Oof. But is now revamping and hopefully going to shoot later this fall or beginning of next year. And we're shooting it on 16. It's a it's a ghost story set, right. set on the border. It's an elevated genre movie, kind of like Get Out in the sense that it's this ghost story, but it's also kind of has some uh, broader, more uh, philosophical themes about the border and life and death and things like that. Um, but we're talking about shooting at anamorphic 16 millimeter, which is something I haven't done before. We've actually... Oh, wow. We've actually done a few tests already, and I couldn't be more excited about that. And I, you know, it's, I feel like it's going to be, it's going to be kind of like, and something that Lance and I have done together. And some of the short films Lance and I have done are some of the favorite things I've done as well. We did Crosswalk, we did a movie called Bloom, which was shot on thirty-five. But this, the the unique thing about these projects with Lance is, I feel like they're almost they have this very gritty handheld docu style to them, but they're also very slick and stylized. So it's almost like they're the child of the Duplass brothers meets homecoming. Like it's the, the common <laughs> combining the elements of the two and making this, you know, hybrid thing. And so I'm really excited about shooting that. So I think that was is kind of the next chapter for me in terms of doing something. I mean, what are your thoughts about getting back to work in the, in the era of COVID? I, you know, I like, I, it's been so back and forth and things have come and gone. And I mean, I feel like as long as the protocols are kind of laid out and, I'm not personally too nervous about it. It's almost like I feel like all those kind of issues are, are all above and beyond me, like, you know, how it works with insurance and actors and things like that and putting all these pieces together. So I, you know, I kind of feel myself as almost like a backseat player to the whole thing and just waiting to see what happens. Mm. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, before we go, uh, is there a website or a social media, Instagram kind of thing where people can uh, interact with you or see your work? Yeah, I have a website, which is www.jasshelton.com, J-A-S-S-H-E-L-T-O-N.com. And then I also have an Instagram that's very neglected, but there are some things on there. And my agents are like, dude, you've got to get your shit together and get your Instagram going. And it's just, I don't know. I mean, I like, it. I just wait, your agents are telling you to Instagram more often. Yeah, dude. I'm like, I am too old, man. Like I am like a boomer. I can't be Instagramming. <laughs> I still call it the Facebook <laughs> anyway. So I technically correct. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. So yeah, inst there's an Instagram, which I think is just jazz Shelton as well. And then, uh, and then my website. 
cool. Which, so the website's cool because it has it has some like I think some clips and photos from some of those smaller movies I've done with Lance, the guy who I'm doing Deadland with the uh, Ghost Project, which I think are really cool. Some really cool things we've done like Bloom and Crosswalk. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, for letting us uh, zoom with you here for a few minutes. And uh, everyone, go check out his website and uh, definitely check out Homecoming season two. It's amazing. All right, so that was Jess Shelton. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Go check out Homecoming Season 2, and uh, good luck at the Emmys. And now, Short Ends. So, Ben, it's our famed Short End time of the show again. Uh, what is your obsession this week? What are you What are you all about? My obsession is Adobe After Effects. Oh. It uh, has a tool that has been in After Effects for a few years called the Roto Brush. What is the Roto Brush? If you don't know, if you're not an Adobe user, the Roto Brush uses sort of edge detection and some other cool shit that is mostly ported over from Photoshop. And so, like, if I'm, I'm looking at you on the Zoom screen, if I had this video file of you on the Zoom screen, I could literally paint around you and and it would rotoscope if you don't know what rotoscoping is that's literally just cutting something out of the background rotoscoping can be some bullshit painstaking work that takes forever because you have to keyframe anytime anything moves the roto brush almost works like a chroma key where i basically would just take the brush and just kind of go over like where your face and shoulders and arms are whatever and then uh and it would not exactly find the edges so then i would go i would put it in the negative mode and go on the stuff that it was picking up that i wasn't doing and then kind of just let it do its math and move forward uh it's a cool tool i have used it uh there's an episode of 20 seconds to live called fish where jonathan mangum gets impaled on a a, like a a weird coat hanger and blood spews out from behind him and the only way to have gotten the mask right was to use the roto brush on his hair specifically it was very hard very hard to use to do it otherwise and uh, we didn't have a location that we could spray blood all over so we, we it had to be done in visual effects so they have come out with a new roto brush and it's not in the main program now, but if you are an Adobe subscriber, you can uh, download the beta version of it and mess around with it. And I have done this and it's insane. I mean, the old Roto brush, the problem was kind of getting it to permutate through frames and kind of get like everything really, you know, uh, clean because it would get jittery and weird and there'd be problems. You'd always end up doing some regular Roto. You'd always end up like being like, why the fuck am I using this tool? It's, it's annoying. Why didn't I shoot this against a green screen like a normal person why am i why am i alive you start thinking about mortality you start hating uh you know every everything and becoming a nihilist like i am and uh the new roto brush is shockingly fast and very mm. accurate and doesn't need nearly as much correction while you're using it and i haven't uploaded any of my samples but you if you go on youtube you can and you put in i think it's just roto brush 2 or new roto brush or do a search for a roto brush that you know from 2020 because the original one I, I think might have come out in like 2015 or earlier it's it's kind of a game changer in a way because you can get chroma key like uh results sometimes and you can use it for literally anything. So, you know, in the case of 20 Seconds to Live, I was comping blood onto a wall and making it not be on a foreground element, which was a person. But you could also be, uh, 
You could use it for color correction to separate elements out. You could you could use it for all kinds of things. And uh, the ease of the new roto brush, I think, is going to just blow people's minds and give them uh, opportunities to do things visually that would just be kind of impossible to do otherwise. So uh, if you're an Adobe subscriber, uh, down you, you can already download the beta version and uh, mess around with that roto brush. It's pretty cool. That sounds awesome. That sounds like a whole bunch of people's lives are just going to get a lot better because uh, one thing that you always hear filmmakers and VFX artists complain about is roto and how long, how long and how tedious the roto process is. So, yeah, I mean, the thing about roto is if you've ever had to do it, you do it, you do it, you, you think you've got it really good and you've like worked it and worked it and worked it and you've busted your ass to make it perfect. And then you hit play and you realize like, uh, you know, like, I can, I can see that I can see it jittering here. Or I can, you know, like the backgrounds popping in a weird way there. I had to do a shot once where a car was hitting a person and I was, I had to roto the, you know, basically we did the old trick of having the person stand in the street and then kind of like move like they were hit by a car and then clear and then have the car drive through the area. And it's, but you're supposed to do it in front of a green screen, but it was a windy day and we didn't have a permit to put a green screen in the middle of the street. So we were hoping that we could just have two people hold it and then walk away and uh, didn't work. And it was yeah. so, so windy. There was just no way we could pull that off. So I was like, ah, I'm just gonna have to roto it. And then like, once you get into that comp, man, it's like you're, you, you push on one thing and then you have to pull on 27 other things. And it's a lot of work. The roto brush really makes that a whole lot faster. And there's even like a refined edge thing, which was in the older one too, that just like, you know, if I were to, to do it and kind of say, okay, you know, it would be like, okay, here's the the basic outline of Ilya. And then you use the refined edge and go over Il- Ilya once more, like around parts like hair or, you know, if you got a fuzzy t-shirt on or something and it like really finds those edges and I don't know how it's doing it, uh, but it's pretty amazing. And uh, I think uh, it, it's just one of those uh, filmmaking tools that 10 years from now we'll be like how did we make movies where we just had to have everything perfect all the time you know it's yeah (laughs) it's it's enabling my laziness i'm really just saying it's making me able to be lazier when i'm a filmmaker so uh bully for me anyway what is your pet obsession for the week i hesitate to call it an obsession but it is something i do pay attention to quite often and that is when i see fervor and anger and uh the idea that the art that people are making is not acceptable to normal humanistic values of the average person. And I, I remember this very specifically, mm-hmm. like when the, the last temptation of Christ was coming out and, and protesters were out in front of the theaters picketing saying, don't see this movie. It's blasphemous. Well, um, there was a movie that was, uh, that won a, a jury prize at Sundance this year called cuties. Uh, that's the, the American title. And it's about, um, Senegalese, mm-hmm. uh, young women growing up and, Really, it got great reviews. Tessa Thompson, who was one of the uh, jury, I th- or it was a member of the jury uh, this year at Sundance, wrote some things just on Twitter today that were uh, very supportive of the movie. But uh, essentially what's happening is that a religious organization uh, is criticizing the movie and saying that no one should see this movie and should boycott Netflix and everything else. Why? Because, yeah, because Netflix uh, released some cover art. This is like the cover art that you see on Netflix when you're, when you're flipping around. And uh, the girls in this movie are on a dance team and their average age is 11 and they were wearing uh, revealing dance sort of clothing. And I think they were doing uh, dance moves, including like twerking that uh, said over sexualized children and that because of this, um, that no one should see the movie, which all it was. And, and Netflix has apologized for this is they took something 
something very sort of sensational and inappropriate and put it out in front of people, but it by no means speaks to the entire movie or the the subtleties or nuances of the movie, which, um, frankly, if it was a story about 11-year-old boys uh, being sexualized and doing something else as it occurs in all kinds of other movies often, uh, wouldn't get the headlines and wouldn't have 300,000 people signing petitions to Netflix to not not show what this is. Now, very interesting, since Tessa Thompson has come out with her tweets, uh, I've seen other petitions starting to circulate saying, hey, this is a great movie. Don't let someone's mistake at Netflix stop you from watching it. And this movie's not out yet. This movie doesn't come out until like uh, first week of September, so it's not too far out, but still, it's like there's a there's a huge group of people who said I didn't like what I saw here in this advertisement without understanding the full story or what it was really about and said cancel cancel culture this is cancel culture we're saying no this doesn't meet our standards when they don't even know what it is so it's um it's it's interesting this this happens I think repeatedly and I feel like there's sort of an attack on the arts particularly from uh, very sort of uh, conservative Christian movement, and I'm not saying that uh, people. I'm I'm a parent, and I have kids, and I don't want them to see everything. But uh, but really, I want to be informed and be able to judge what my kids see, and to just immediately say like, oh, I saw this this poster or this billboard, or maybe a few seconds of a of a trailer, and now I'm completely writing it off. I don't I don't think that's uh, and I'm going to encourage 300,000 other people to sign a petition. This is all. This is like. I feel like you got you got better things to do with your life, especially right now, than to, to go on a rampage against something and not really understanding what it what it is. So I mean, anyway, we, we brought up James Gunn uh, earlier, and you know, James Gunn was taken off of Guardians of the Galaxy three, and Guardians of the Galaxy would not be anything without James Gunn. No, like no, I mean, it, no, it, it's, it it's, wasn't a prop, it wasn't a hot property, it wasn't like Batman. He made it hot by doing an amazing job, but because. He had made some inappropriate attempts at being funny in on Twitter that, uh, you know, were super gross. I'm not going to defend what he said on Twitter, but like, you know, something like this happened and he was removed from Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And then uh, basically, I think the dust settled and Disney was like, how can we, who the hell else? Like all the stars of Guardians of the Galaxy were like, we don't want to do this without James Gunn. And, and uh, do I recall correctly too that like that wasn't even like recent or while it was going on that someone went back like six years or something and found that for, about it was, James? It was it like, was very old. I mean, you know, the thing is like uh, I I do think if you said reprehensible things on Twitter, it it definitely is. It's not you shouldn't you shouldn't get absolution just because you said it ten years ago or whatever. No, no, no. But, I, my point was like it's not like he wasn't. I think he was probably hired. Uh, long after he said this, and that someone specifically went out and unearthed this from a time when he oh, was yeah, younger yeah, no, and no. everything else. Yeah, they, it was they, not they a, were digging. Th- it was it was I think like Devin Nunes or something. It was it was a conservative movement to basically uh, just to, to paint him with, yeah. with with that kind of a brush. And you know why? Uh, I, I I can't I can't really speak to why, but I feel like there's a lot of pearl clutching. And you know I I'm unfamiliar with cuties, but you know if the if the artwork is the problem and not the movie, then you know uh, certainly uh, petition Netflix to change out the key art. And and probably if there's enough pressure, they would do it. But uh, you know I, I it, it's they, just they have of, it's been changed. Yeah, that that happened really quickly. I don't know. It, it's I, I, f- I find it frustrating, you know, when something isn't inappropriate. But, you know, the, the problem is most people won't see whatever it is, and, you know, unless unless you're making a, an Avengers movie, most people aren't going to see it. So what in the the fake thing that you tar it with ends up being its actual reputation moving forward. 
and uh, that's not that's not fair, especially when I'm assuming this is you know a movie by a rather underrepresented group of people getting something that's like a little bit of mainstream attention. It could have humongous impacts on the uh, on 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 the economy of Senegal or on the film industry in Senegal. It could help discover the next you know great filmmaker who you know America brain drains over here to make you know some some other Marvel hero that I've never heard of. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's unfortunate that people, I feel like they're tilted at outrage all the time. They're trying, they're trying to find a thing to be outraged about even in something that isn't really outrageous. Well, well what I'm really help, hopeful for from this is that people maybe now who weren't going to see it might might actually go see it. They might actually, there might be a certain number of people like, well, I'm going to give this a shot. You know, um, Frankly, I didn't really have any interest in seeing Cats, but so many people said how terrible Cats was. Mm. I had to VOD it. I paid for it. I got my whole family together. We went in front of the, in front of the screen. We turned up the sound, and yeah, it really was as terrible as everybody said. I, yeah. I, I haven't seen Cats yet, but uh, like everything since I became a parent, it's like eh, when it shows up on uh, you know on one of the services I'm already paying for, I'll check it out. No, but but truly, the terrible press created the morbid curiosity for me to see it and uh i was very i was very much hoping that i was gonna say like it's not as bad as everyone said oh i really enjoyed no it's horrible it's really bad so (laughs) at least the the outrage wasn't coming uh wasn't coming from uh conservative religious groups it was just universally panned and loathed and now i i understand why it was coming from theater nerds (laughs) it was not just theater nerds it really made people question i think and remember like did I go see Cats? Was it really like this? Was it this bad? Yeah, that was that was pretty bad. I did see, I saw Cats in you, the theater, uh, the play. It was oh, one of the yeah. first big plays I ever saw. My parents took me to see it when I was uh, probably 11 or 12 years old. And I remember being blown away because I think every play I'd seen up until then had been like some, you know, community theater production of Oklahoma. And then like, here's this crazy set and these weird ass costumes. And I was, I was all in and in this very different music, very more modern than the stuff I had seen leading up to that. Um, I, I don't know that I would like it if I saw it today, but I, you know, haven't seen it in many decades. I, I do feel very bad for Broadway during this pandemic. This is definitely going to be something that um, this is definitely going to be a time that they can't quite recover from the same way that uh, maybe movie theaters can, at least to a certain extent. I don't know how movie how do movie theaters. Uh, oh God, I, I've already. Okay, I've, I, this is going off topic, but I've already seen uh, a couple of theater chains talking about uh, upgrading their uh, ventilation systems to some sort of like uh, air purifying, you know, kill kill everything in the air system. But then I also saw a statement from the uh, North American Theater Owners, NATO Society. They said something that something to the effect of if you go to the movies, it's not a 100 percent risk free activity. And I kind of feel like. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but you're not bungee jumping, right? Like, no, you're not bungee jumping and you're not randomly just making out with every uh, person you see waiting out in front of maybe a hospital. Maybe you aren't. So, <laughs> yes, but, uh, it, but I mean, really, it's like uh, they, they've talked about like, you know, blocking off entire rows, blocking off every other seat. They've been talking about doing all kinds of different things. So I, I don't know that's, what makes that's it. not a sales pitch. Movie theaters, they were always risky. That's not a that's not something that I want to hear. I mean, like, yeah, maybe I got the common cold or a flu once or twice from being in a movie theater. Who knows? But uh, no, no, I, I the, the the bottom line of everything is we don't get back to doing stuff like that till there's a vaccine and we have herd immunity. I'm sorry. 
yeah. we just don't. Yeah. We're just like, why, why, who, who's going to risk their lives to, to see a movie that they're going to forget 20 minutes after they walk out of it? Like, I, I love movies. I'm, do, I'm we're doing this podcast because we both love filmmaking and we love filmmakers and we love movies. But for God's sakes, who, who's going to go to a theater? Like, that is the most voluntary uh, activity you could participate in. Why would you go to a theater? Why would you go to a concert venue? Why would you go to a, a live uh, theater production? Why would you do any of those things when they're all risky and also 100% unnecessary? Mm, that's true. There, there are other ways to get what you would like to see in front of your eyes, and it doesn't yeah. involve your phone. So, yeah, that's 100%. 100% yeah. true. So uh, you'll get no argument from me. Uh, ben, but that is too much for us to unpack in the, the short ends section of our podcast. So I think Sorry. we should probably, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we just get going. Yeah. We let's, let's thank, let's thank our team. Let's thank Alana Cody, uh, producer extraordinaire who, uh, helped yeah. to make all this stuff, uh, come together. Let's thank, uh, Kay Zalatrachi who probably didn't listen to the show, but I hope he does. And then, uh, I hope he does too. <laughs> Let's think. And he, he he got my computer up and running. So uh, hey, uh, all right, yeah, that, that, I, that, I really that, appreciate. That's wonderful. Let, let's thank uh, Ben Katz, uh, editor, who recently chopped a one-hour interview into twenty minutes. He's had to go back and do another pass, but you know, good on him. He is he's certainly he's cutting. He's going. This is boring. Cutting this out. It's leaving. Yeah, you and me talking right now. I think there's a bunch of stuff that he's going to just like get gone. to the point. Rock. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Ben. Uh, hey, let's let's tell people to to do something for us. How about uh, how about subscribe? Subscribe. If you're not subscribing, do that now. Subscribe. Yes, subscribe. Like us and uh, take seriously. It will take you under two minutes to go on the iTunes portal and say say one thing about us, nice or nasty. You can say something horrible. I, hey, I can take nasty. Say, if you say something terrible, we might even read it on the podcast because we've been <laughs> reading all the nice ones too. That's right. That's right. You know, the good news is we don't really get nasty we don't get those nasty comments i mean we must be doing something right we don't, we don't really get those somebody you're nobody till somebody hates you yeah but well, yeah you're right. ju- just wait yeah. <laughs> oh they're gonna <laughs> someone's someone's gonna hate this one because i i brought up cuties undoubtedly yeah so, yeah uh, all excellent right. well uh ben uh until next week we will sort of we will see you we'll we'll hear you we'll you'll hear us we don't really have a good tag out we don't have a you know hey high it. five we yeah, we don't have a we don't have yeah. a good good outro except say except to say what we always say, which is we'll see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. Booyah. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.